1: You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Roisin. Yes, Cathy. What are you thinking this week? Are we going to have
2: a row about something? I hope not. I'm just really looking forward to Christmas, actually. I kind of, I'm really into it this year. I'm always into it, but I'm really into it this year. And I'm just looking forward to a few days off, as I'm sure all our listeners are as well. And I'll tell you someone else who might be looking forward to a few days off, but is probably not going to get any time off, is Theresa May. And I think we should discuss her today.
1: Well I hope she doesn't get any time off.
2: Okay well I feel a bit sorry for her Kathy. and I, I saw a really interesting Twitter thread which kind of summed it up and the Twitter thread was about how essentially she's just in an impossible situation and the British people have have voted for essentially what is a cheese submarine. So they've said, we want a cheese submarine. And Theresa May has said, well, I didn't actually vote for the cheese submarine, but the people have said they want a cheese submarine. So I'm going to try and deliver the cheese submarine. And then everyone's gone. that's a shit cheese submarine. That's terrible. That's not a good cheese submarine at all. And she's in that situation. She's trying to deliver something impossible to the people. And I just think she seems like a very capable, competent, um, you know, as politicians go, no worse or better than anyone else. And I do just think, oh my God, the pressure she is under. I know she's the Prime Minister of Britain, but what pressure? And it's an impossible situation. That's my hot take for today. Well, it's an interesting one. <laughs> because
1: she was a Remainer when she voted. She yeah. voted to remain, but was extremely muted about it. That's right, yeah. She then became a Brexiter, which is fine because it's her job to implement the, the people's voice. However, she became absolutely bald headed Brexiter. And she wanted the cheese submarine entirely of cheese when some people would have thought, well, a little bit of cheese in there might be useful. But she decided to go for the whole cheese thing.
2: Wheel of cheese.
1: Yeah, Yes, the full wheel of cheese. So it's that that bothers me about her, about how she changed her mind several times about so many things. I mean, she changed her mind about the snap election. She invoked Article 50 when she didn't have to. She has done a lot of things she didn't have to do in the pursuance of this Brexit, this particular Brexit, which I believe very few people wanted, apart from that hard rump of her own party. So what was she at? Apart from that, she is talking about immigration. Immigration is her big thing. And she has utterly, utterly misjudged the situation on immigration in Britain. And now she's been proven to be wrong on that. They need their immigrants. They've never satisfactorily explained the EU position on immigration, on freedom of movement. People in Britain do not understand that there are various strictures and regulations surrounding freedom of movement. They never understood the difference between freedom of movement within the EU and immigration coming from outside the EU. Nobody's explained that to them. And I put that absolutely at her door because this was her. This is her mission. And she has made it her mission. Therefore, I do not feel sorry for her. But she is you, pushing something that's absolutely Cathy, impossible. Who, and she knows it.
2: But the thing is, what else can she do? And who do you think would be doing a better job? Like, is she doing a bad job or is she just doing the best she can do in a really terrible situation?
1: Well, she began by pushing this impossible dream. She fell in with that rump, of the Jacob Rees-Mogg-Boris Johnson rump of her party. Initially, I thought she'd appointed those guys to those positions, such as Liam Fox, Boris Johnson, Michael Gove. I thought he, she was setting them up to fail. But it looks like she was setting up right-wing Brexiters to do the job that she believed the people wanted. And they have all failed. And I'm sorry to say she has failed. Whether this is a man or a woman, if they had pursued that approach that she has, they were going to fail. And they never once considered the backstop in Northern Ireland. They never, the backstop is a recent invention. I mean, they never once considered Northern Ireland. And I really do blame her for that. She is the Prime Minister after all.
2: Looking into your uh, crystal ball, what what do you think is going to happen?
1: I think, interestingly, after, after the vote this week, uh, the vote of confidence, she has a year now during which she cannot be challenged. Mm. So what will happen is there's going to be the meaningful vote in the House of Commons. That deal will not pass. So what happens next is anybody's guess. Meanwhile, Jeremy Corbyn is sitting on the fence, has yeah, said he's absolutely. He's splinters in his bum, hasn't he? A he lot has splinters. He's said nothing meaningful for two and a half years. He keeps, putting on the vote, he keeps putting off the vote of confidence on from his side. And the problem with Jeremy Corbyn is he is an arch-Brexiter who's running down the clock. And he hopes that they will just fall into Brexit without him having to do anything, and then he will appear as a as a conquering
2: hero then in the next it's election. Just awful! I was um, spending some time with a woman uh, from England who'd come over here on a visit, and she was really just asking everyone she met, "Do you think that we like this? Do you think that we want this?" Terrified that that there's a sense in Ireland that you know all British people are are, are you know our brexiters or whatever. Like it's 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 an awful time to be in England at the moment for a lot of people. I think
1: they have terrible politicians, and they have a branch of their media is truly truly terrible so I do not blame the people
2: our thoughts are with them Cathy Uh, and getting away from that what have you got in store for us on this episode
1: well we have something actually fascinating and I could have spent seven hours on this (laughs)
2: it's always a good sign I
1: still went over (laughs) my, my allotted time but it's about, it's about, it's, it's an extraordinary story. In the late 1980s, the Irish Times sent Conor O'Cleary, our legendary journalist, yeah. to Moscow to be the paper's correspondent there at a time when Mikhail Gorbachev was in power and everything was about to change with the Soviet Union on the verge mm-hmm. of collapse. Connor wrote about Glasnost and Perestroika and the burgeoning new Russia in his articles for this paper and his book Melting Snow as well, because Connor has always written a book while he's been somewhere. Yeah, Let's not be one of those about this. Yes, he is a bit one of, of a those. a Fintan
2: in that way, isn't he? He <laughs> is. He certainly is.
1: But Russia is also where he met and married his wife, Jana, who has become the subject of his latest book, The Shoemaker and His Daughter. It's a memoir about Jana's family, but it also covers, importantly, 80 years of Russian history. From Stalin to Putin. So, anybody who wants an explanation about where the oligarchs sprang from, they should read this book. It's a story told through the eyes of Jana's family, which makes it extremely accessible. You will come out of this much more knowledgeable about Russian politics. Jana, Chechnya, Siberia, to us, they signify desolation, icy wastes, brutality, all those things. You actually spent a lot of your life in a a closed city called Krasnoyarsk. Um, But it's not as simple as that at all, is it? I mean, how you survived all that is a mystery to us here in the West. But clearly you survived and survived very well. So just tell us a bit about your upbringing.
3: Thank you, Cathy. My family are are Armenian and my uh, father was half Russian. So I was born actually in Chechnya. into an Armenian family, and we had a very comfortable uh, middle class by Western standards life in um, the Caucasus, where the climate is wonderful, it's Mediterranean lifestyle. We basically ate outside on the terrace from April through October. And for us there in in Grozny to, to move to Siberia, it was the same as it sounds to you. You know, means cold and terrible weather and and God knows what. But frankly, when when the family moved to Siberia because of the situation in the family, where my father was uh, in prison for uh, selling akaya to profit, and after he he spent five years, almost five years in prison, and he got out, he felt. There, there there was um stigma on the family and he was worried about the us children growing up myself and my sister and he decided to uproot the family and, and move move uh, east and um how many miles away was that jana how far was it was, was that? i don't know 5000 miles away it was it it is it is a long long away it is basically you know 3 and another 5 hours flight uh, from from uh, the Caucasus from where we lived and but my father embraced it and obviously we also came you know and and we embraced it as well and it was different because we lived in a in a lovely house in in the Caucasus and we moved into an apartment in a, in a communal apartment in uh, Siberia where we lived uh and um but we persevered. We settled in, and the the climate actually is not as as terrible as as it sounds because the it's continental weather. Summer is very hot. It is short, but it is very hot. You know, long winter. It was at the time from October through March there was snow and it was cold.
1: Um, and uh, so, did you grow up? not conscious of gulags. I mean, that's all we think of, I'm sorry to have to tell you. Mm. Gulags, uh, a day in the life of Ivan Dinesovich, Gen- um, uh, all of those things that we thought were a huge cause on our side. Was that obvious to you at all?
3: It was obvious a little bit because obviously the city was closed. And also, obviously, uh, you referred to Solzhenitsyn's book, obviously, as a as a self-produced publication, some is that so-called, we had access to to the book or to some stories about what was happening. But obviously, we didn't know the extent. We knew that that the city where we moved was heavily industrial city and they uh, heavily militarized city. And the industry was was, uh, basically the reason why we thought that the city was closed for foreigners. I never met a foreigner until the age of 23. And I studied foreign languages at university, English and German. Uh, it was closed for foreigners. Connor was the first foreigner to be allowed to to visit my my uh, city. So this closed city, you still managed to learn English and do different languages, Jana. Yes, I who taught you. Who taught me? I, uh, I, you know, obviously I went to school like everybody mm. else, and I was a good student. I loved studying, and I. Loved foreign language. I mean, English was taught. Uh, English and German maybe was a, was a, was an option at school. But I, I chose English, and I had a wonderful, wonderful, enthusiastic teacher. Obviously, we had limited access to resources, to any native spe- speakers tapes or anything like that. So it was enthusiasm, but also because she was so so inspiring. I basically chose to study foreign languages at the university. And don't ask me why, because obviously I knew I couldn't really use them properly because I never thought I was going to live, you know, uh, the country or even the city where I lived, where my family uh, at, that, at that point lived. But obviously there was some curiosity inside of me as well. Literature was something that we always had access to, you know, and theatre, some of the works that were produced in the theatres, because culture and access to literature was there, and and we had huge appetite for this. Obviously, in the absence of maybe other things that that you in the West are used
1: to, like travel and seeing for yourselves those countries. Jana, what was it like growing up as a woman? We have this notion, on the other hand, that women were tremendously liberated. Uh, you had access to abortion long, long ago. Um, uh, we were taught that you were the absolute antichrist. I mean, there was a hymn. I don't know if you remember it, Connor. Maybe you don't. It was about Our Lady of Fatima, and there was a line that saying, "Bring Russia back home again." Do you remember that? <laughs> um, so, as far as we were concerned, you had these amazing freedoms. On the other hand, is that how it felt when you were when you were growing up?
3: Yes, we do. I mean, I th- I think we did we d- we did obviously. And I and I, um, you know, I feel that. The Soviet, the old Soviet Union, while it was a very, you know, the the entity that oppressed people to 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 a degree because there was no democracy, because there was one party system, and because we only had, uh, you know, access to party dogma, and we were taught uh, um, atheism at school. Uh, obviously, as a as a young person growing up, I felt that I was totally equal to any person. I, I didn't feel that 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 I was in any way oppressed. Actually, you know, I was growing up. To be fair, at the time when it was already a slightly different environment in in the 70s and 80s, where you you could actually maybe, uh, you know, enjoy a little bit more, and the Communist Party doesn't ha, ha- didn't have the same sort of hold on 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 people. Uh, so I never, having grown up in the Soviet Union, frankly with all i went through through the whole system of being part of the system being you know uh belonging to all these entities that characterize the soviet union and the party system being a member of the communist party eventually i never felt actually myself oppressed as as a, as an individual mm-hmm. obviously part of it is that i didn't have access to any other way of life and i didn't know any better you know and we had very limited information uh, in, in respect to outside world. Uh, yes, we had access to some news, but, but it was international news, but it was obviously vetted heavily. And, you know, whatever was reported was very, very, you know, sterile. Mm. And, and it didn't allow me to make my own judgments on whether whatever they reported in Pravda
1: newspaper was was true or not true, because there was no other way. There was no. I will come back to your family's experiences through Connor's eyes, because this is what he he discerned that you had the most amazing story going back several generations. But you ended up in Moscow, Jana. How did that happen? I was when I when I,
3: when I graduated from the from the university. I was lucky enough. I was I was offered a position at the university to teach English. Uh, so it was basically half a year, uh, half a year after I had graduated. So, and then I was absolutely delighted, but I also knew that it meant academic career. And uh, unfortunately, in Krasnarsk where I lived, even though it was a, a city of a million population, and we had lots of universities and some access to postgraduate courses. Because I think English and German and French were not, uh, you know, common areas of study we had to travel to Moscow, St. Petersburg, to to a former Leningrad, to do a PhD. So I then started preparing to, and I took exams, etc., to become a postgraduate student to do my PhD uh, in, believe it or not, lexicology of the English language. So that's what brought me to Moscow. I went through um, a period where I spent uh, several months working on a research project, to make sure that the that there was somebody a supervisor who was who saw that I have a potential as a person who she would you know uh choose to 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 be her phd student et cetera, provided i went through the exams
1: and stuff like that
3: so you were you,
1: you were encouraged jana there was a, there was a sense of of yes this is a good thing to do
3: absolutely absolutely you know, maybe it would help a little bit like in any family where parents had no access to education. In my family, my parents, even though they, they were both very smart people, well read and were interested in the outside world and read newspapers and current affairs and everything. I, I grew up in the atmosphere where my family provided for me, you know, as much as they could. But also they encouraged us, myself and my sister, to, you know, to work hard to 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 study, we when I was five years old, my parents bought a piano because they never had access to the piano. But my sister and I went through seven years of music school, not only uh, you know uh, reg- regular school because they felt they wanted to give us all this, and we we were delighted to take those opportunities and to study. And that's why when I and when I became uh, um, lecture or whatever. At that point, I was started teaching at the university and this opportunity came up. and I suppose I was academic enough as a person as a, as a, that I wanted to do it, obviously. but so went, of course you... I was encouraged uh, uh, tremendously and then by this stage I had I had a daughter, I had a family, and it was a difficult decision to make a you know a decision to because go you to couldn't study take university them with you because I couldn't take them with me due to the fact that I had to live in the dormitory, it was very difficult to basically uproot the family and for my husband to find a job in Moscow where he might not be able to to, to have a residence permit, and etc. So eventually, eventually I had to make a choice and I was encouraged by my family, by my husband as well, that you should go and do it and when you come back, you know... Uh, Anyway, we, we, we'll take care of my 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 daughter and uh, my my parents said they they would help and do their best, and I basically was coming back as much as I could. First year was a bit difficult because, as in any postgraduate course, you have to attend lots of classes, etc. But then, when I started working more independently, I could spend more time at home. Yeah, uh, you know as well. So you're in Moscow. What age are you at this stage? At at, at this stage, I was I was. Uh, I was twenty-seven years old. Twenty-seven years old.
1: And you are living in this dormitory. Living in the dormitory. You are being a very diligent student, doing studying for your PhD, and then tell us about what happened next.
3: Then I, uh, in terms of, I was I was I was into my third third year of postgraduate course. It was summer, summer of uh, eighty-seven. I started in 85. I, I basically was going home for for the whole summer. And I will explain a little bit how Connor comes into, into, into my life. I um, had a Scottish friend in the dormitory who was teaching teaching English at the university where I was a student, postgraduate student. And she basically said there is this Irish journalist who... Uh, who has had just arrived, and he's looking for a regular Soviet citizen to help him with his Russian. Uh, as a foreigner and as a journalist, Kwaner was assigned a driver, an interpreter, a, you know, a cleaning person, etc. And the same about the teacher. But because he felt that he arrived and he was surrounded by people who were provided to him through official channels, he felt maybe he could get away with having somebody, you know, from
1: regular society to, to teach him Russian. And Conor, can you just tell us why that was? What were you perceiving at the time? Why did you say it had to be a regular person?
0: Well, I, this was still the Cold War, still the Soviet Union. And the foreign community in Moscow was very limited. The Soviet authorities would only allow a certain number of, of uh, correspondents in from every country. I was the only Irish correspondent. There were a limited number of English and American and French and Italian correspondents. Uh, we were um, kept in a sort of closed community. For example, we were given apartments, but the entrance to the apartment zone was guarded by militia uh, or police, who were who would report to the KGB who was going in, who was going out. So we couldn't make friends with Soviet citizens very easily because they would. There, there was a law at the time, an actual law in the statute books, that Soviet citizens were not allowed to help foreigners without uh, express permission. So I knew that the driver uh, w- was uh, reporting on me every month. I knew that my interpreter wasn't reporting on me every month because that was just, just the way it was and your phones were, were monitored. Uh, I felt, uh, you know, that journalists and diplomats, we would meet in each other's apartments, we'd have dinner and we'd, we, we, we became sort of, a, we, we, we just talked to each other and uh, we told each other what we'd found out from the newspapers. Do you have to go
1: outside point. to talk? Was oh, there, we could, there, yes. We could travel. Involved?
0: But, for example, if I wanted to travel to Leningrad or to Riga, I would have to get permission from the foreign ministry and, and you would give that two days in advance so that they could set up the security apparatus wherever you're going to keep an eye on you. Uh, our cars had number plates which identified what country you came from. My car number plate was K037, which... Any militia man on the road knew I was a correspondent and I came from Ireland because 037 was the code for Ireland. So it was a very much a, a, an enclosed society and I really, really wanted to meet ordinary people. And I met... Uh, I, I was a, a Scottish student there who I met through the foreign community. Uh, I expressed my desire to meet somebody like, like Shanna. And uh, she said, well, listen... I know somebody who's in the same dormitory as me. Uh, she was a student herself, uh, and she would be very helpful to you. I know, and, and she would love to help you, and uh, you could help her with her English. But if you ever offer her any money, you'll never see her again. Um, so this yeah. this this was, this, this, <laughs> was, this was Jana. So so that's 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 how we met, and uh, we we had a couple of lessons, and then. One day, I think Janice should take up the story here. She got a phone call from home.
3: Uh, yeah, so we, so we, we met. Connor and I met around middle of June with Alison to say hello to each other, and I said, "Nice to meet you, etc." But I'm going off for the whole summer, and I will be back in the middle of September. And when I come back, if you are still looking for a teacher, then then we'll see. And it happened so that his apartment was just on the same square where Library of Foreign Languages was on Taganska Square. So it would be convenient enough for me to come at nine o'clock in the morning to have a lesson and then go to the library opened at, at ten. So I came back in the middle of September. I I called Quarner to say, I'm I'm back. Are you still looking for, for you know, are you still looking for lessons? Because I thought maybe he had already organized something. He said yes. And we had a couple of lessons, basically. And then on the 7th of October, I got, a, I got a call. I came back. It was a Saturday. I came back from the library to the dormitory, and, and the woman at the, at the desk said to me, Shana, you got a call from home, and you should immediately go back. And I, uh, I, she didn't tell me what happened, because obviously my mother, when she called, she couldn't tell somebody her husband had died and I, I basically looked at the at my watch. It was I I know the flights. I know what to do, etc. And I immediately left for the airport because I couldn't call from the dormitory. There was no there was a telephone, but I couldn't call. I needed to go to a special international, you know, uh, post office where you could you could make a phone call, uh, not international, but but the, you know regional uh, call, etc. So I had to get into the car. Took a taxi to the airport, to, to bought tickets, and only then I, I called home from the airport, and that's when my mother told me that my husband had died. He was he was severely beaten, and that he was he was uh, you know he never gained conscious. So I was on the plane for this obviously four and a half hours was a very long, very long flight, and uh, when I came back. I mean when I when they arrived, my, my parents obviously put everything in place in terms of you know prepare me for this, etc, but it was it was very, very difficult um, situation to lose your husband, but also you know the circumstances were very difficult and you had a little girl. I had a little girl, and I had discovered that uh, you know when my husband was beaten. He was in the company of a, of, a, of of another woman, and I only my my parents were very protective. They didn't want to tell me anything because they were hoping maybe I would never, you know, learn about this. But then when the the police invited me as well, I don't know what, what part of the inquiry or what. I, I I don't know for sure because they. So anyway, when I came, the the woman there basically told me. And that was the first time I, I actually heard that that he was he was there was somebody in the car which uh, who apparently was uh, you know
1: uh, had a relationship with him i you think you've been having an affair? yes yes that really must have been very very difficult indeed jana and so did you go back to Moscow then immediately or what happened? Yes,
3: so, so what happened was I, I basically wanted to give up uh, and knowing that I have a daughter, my, 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 my daughter was uh, seven years old. Anyway, I, I then my parents basically said to me, Jana, you have one year left, you, you know, look, she will grow up. And now, you know, uh, sort of family life, we, Because I think life was so difficult, and maybe it was years ago in Ireland in the West the same way, but families stuck together much more. You know, there was, you know, whatever I had or my parents had, I had, and everything was shared. Nobody thought twice about anything. My brother-in-law, when he bought a toy for his son, he would bring a toy for my daughter. When I was not there, my brother-in-law would, would take care of my daughter as much as he would of his own son, you know, and the same, of course, about my parents, my sister, et cetera, et cetera. So they they basically, you know, persuaded me to go back. And after a month, I went back and I resumed my, my postgraduate uh, studies. And I had, you know, I was doing well and I had uh, already for next year's uh, presentation of my thesis. I already had the date and everything. So I concentrated on my studies and and we, I called Connor to say I was back. And and we resumed lessons, and then eventually, a few months into, you know, the lessons and exploring Moscow together and being at the high at the at the heart of all this political change in Russia, which was tremendous. It was most uplifting period of of uh, history, at least in my experience. For me, when you learned so many things about the country that you didn't know. When we learned about gulags, when we learned how. You know Stalin oppressed people and how so many people died, Lenin. and uh, Lenin and the rest of it. So there was no end to it. I remember getting up at six o'clock in the morning to make sure that I was in the kiosk, you know, one of the first one to queue to get, uh, you know, weekly or monthly publications that were coming out on specific days because if you are not there, you will not get it because they were sold out, you know, completely. And then we would t- uh, pass them on. From you know, person to person, because because we were just so hungry f- for, for
1: for this. Uh, so here, the two of you are at this point you are both unattached. Um, you're wandering around Moscow, Connor. You're doing your legendary journalist stuff. Uh, you're witnessing the most amazing events in world history. Never mind the USSR, and you're obviously forging a very you're you're, you're getting closer to one another. That must have been unbelievably exciting.
0: Uh, yeah. it was such an exciting time to be there when we were, history was on the move uh, the whole society was opening up Gorbachev with his glasnost had this idea that glasnost means openness that the only way to reform society and create a, a new and vibrant Soviet Union was to expose what was going wrong expose all the, the ills of the Soviet Union because the economy was collapsing Soci- the, the Lenin's 70 year old experiment was just not working Uh, The problem for Gorbachev was that Glasnost told people too much and they realised that uh, the Soviet Union had to either be reformed very radically or be dispensed with. And we know that history shows us that uh, they they chose the latter. Uh, Jeanne and I uh, became uh, close because we... We were both unattached and now uh, and over a period of several months we began to get invited to uh, colleagues' uh, dinner parties and return invitations. So we, we became recognised as a couple. But the day had to come when Jana had to go back to resume her position now as an assistant professor or as a professor at the university in Krasnoyarsk. And uh, I began to panic that I would never see her again. Uh, at the time, we had uh, gone skiing together quite a lot in Prairie and, and visited this writer's village outside Moscow, which was our favourite place in the whole of Russia. And we would go there and visit the grave of Pasternak and visit his house. And we, on a Sunday afternoon, uh, fans of Pasternak's poetry, we think of Pasternak as a novelist because of Dr. Shivago, but he was a wonderful poet. And uh, we would go to the grave where people would gather and recite this poetry every every weekend. And we got to know some of them quite well. One of them actually cited uh, Lake Isle of Venice Free in Russian when he knew we were from, I was from Ireland. So anyway, I took Shanna to Peridelkin on the day before she was to go back to to Krasnoyarsk. And we were... Sorry, we hadn't said anything about a future together. But uh, I proposed to her there and... At the time, it was impossible to think that we could share a life together. I was divorced, five children, most of them nearly grown up. Um, Jeanne was going back as a widow with a daughter and a a job. Uh, But what I put to her was, look, this is an impossible situation, but whatever difficulties come up, we'll tackle them one at a time. And Jeanne didn't say yes. She didn't say no. She didn't say no. (laughs) She, She didn't say no. She went back to Krasnoyarsk. In fact, she wasn't going to come that day to, to Per because she was a bit afraid that, um, uh, you know, it would be too emotional. So she was just going to slip off back home. So I was very fortunate. So every week, I, her, her lessons in Russian had, been, had, had given me a, a, a head start and I was able to write in Russian now. So every week I wrote to Jana saying, you know, why we should get married. And every week she wrote back saying you know, I have my child here, I have my job here, you know. But eventually, <laughs> and I think the KGB read all those letters too, because uh, that would be part of the, the way the system worked. But anyway, so they knew very well what was going on. And eventually, Jana said yes and she brought Julia, her daughter, to meet you me.
1: He wore you down, said, Jana? Yeah, Absolutely, <laughs> no. It was just
3: too complicated and, and obviously, as Connor explained, it was difficult for him and it was difficult for me. And then when I actually mentioned to mention that I had somebody in my life to my to my parents, they were delighted for me, but my mother said to me, obviously knowing what I had gone through, but my mother said, "Jana, be careful, you know, he's going to leave and you are going to stay. Because yes. there was no even option in my family. Nobody ever, ever, even after the fact that my father was put to prison and somebody maybe would have got out and to say, we are going to leave this goddamn country and go somewhere, you know, it was never, never an option because my parents were this hardworking, regular people who were, you know, generally quite compliant, even though my father worked around the system to provide for us, to give us a good life. He worked very hard to work two jobs so that he would have money to buy whatever he could in our system. But, but they also never, never aspired to leave, leave the country because I think they also knew life is hard anywhere and and you have to work hard in order to have a good life. And so for the first time in my life, when I mentioned to my mother that I think, you know, I'm going uh, to marry Connor, she said to me, she was so upset that she, for the first time, we had sort of like misunderstanding or whatever it is, you know, uh, disagreement with my mother because she, she didn't want to hear about this. Part of it, of course, she knew she was losing me. But part of it, as a woman, she also knew life is complicated and what happens if I go somewhere and it doesn't work out? And you're abandoned. And, and yes. what do I do yes. next? And I think that was that was uh, something that, that really worried her. I, you know, the age difference as well. I mean... 18 was, years
1: between you, this was, yeah? yeah?
3: This was also something, obviously, that didn't bother us. But generally, you have to think about all those things. But... Uh, but again, Connor was very good, saying to me, "Let us decide that we want to be together, and then we'll see how we sort things out." He adopted Julia and uh, and then and he actually didn't have a chance, believe it or not, to meet my parents prior to our, you know, marriage, because he was not allowed to go to Siberia where I lived
1: to meet my parents. So your poor mother was at home already opposing this and yes. hadn't even met. No. Well, she ooh. did come
0: to Moscow she for the, did wedding. Come to the
1: wedding. She came for the wedding, but the wedding. it was a bit late at that stage to be uh, trying yeah. to stage an intervention. Uh, <laughs> uh,
0: because Krasnoyarsk was a closed city, I wasn't allowed to visit to meet Jana's family before we got married. But just by coincidence, shortly after we got married, they began to open... The, the Gorbachev's reforms meant that these closed cities began to open up. And I went to my minder in the Soviet foreign ministry, a guy called Yuri Saponov, uh, and said, listen, listen I, I'm now married to somebody from Krasnoyarsk, and I really would like to go and meet her extended family. And he said, well, he said, why don't you apply for a business trip? And he gave me a wink. In other words, the, I could go there as a journalist with a fixed itinerary of interviewing factory managers and party chiefs or whatever, uh, but not as a private citizen. So I, he drew up a, 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 an agenda for me to visit the to interview the head of the paper and pulp mill or whatever. So I, I I got on the plane, and Jana at this stage couldn't come with me because she had got a job now in Moscow uh, teaching English in the American embassy. And Julia was at school down in Moscow, so I had to go on my own and meet uh, teaching Jana's... Russian. Uh,
3: teaching Russian.
0: Teaching Russian. Sorry, teaching Russian, yes. So I had to um, uh, go on my own. And uh, Jana's family... Embraced me, took me out for a picnic in the taiga in the forest, and, I had and a wonderful time. My mother
1: ta- wasn't wasn't giving you a side <laughs> eye and thinking, "What have we got here?" No,
0: no. I I must say, from from the time we got married, I've had a wonderful relationship with my mother-in-law, and uh, she. Tell so us
1: about the picnic in the forest, Connor.
0: Uh, well, um, being Armenians, uh, the picnic had a certain character. Uh, we had a couple couple of cars were brought, and Janas. Uh, brother-in-law and uh, sister and various cousins who had come to Krasnoyarsk and Jana's parents. We all headed off into the forest, but on the way we stopped at a market and they bought a live lamb, which was trussed up and put in the boot. And uh, when we reached a clearing in the forest, it was a beautiful forest, lovely Scots pines and still air. It was October, but it was a sort of a, an Indian summer. And they, two of the lads, took the lamb off into the trees, and uh, the next thing there was beautiful lamb cooking over uh, that's a fire with a lot of
1: bare baring. <laughs> <laughs> and aubergine,
0: aubergines uh, burning on the fire to give it a flavour. I must say, it was the most delicious meal. It was absolutely wonderful. And uh, so this is
1: how you met your future in-laws. That's how I met my future in-laws. And you were married within two years of meeting, actually. So yes. it was, even though it sounds quite drawn out,
3: yeah, it was pretty quick. We we absolutely it was quite quick because we spent a year, as I, we spent a year when I was still uh, in Moscow as a postgraduate student, and then I went back home in October, and then we married in June. So it was it was exactly two years since we had met um, that we got married. Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: And Connor, going back now to Jana's extraordinary family history and what made you begin get this idea. Gosh, there is a there is a huge story here, told through the eyes of a family most unusually, but touching on some of the world's great events uh, of the twentieth century. I mean, let's just go back to the KGB for a start, which everybody knows about, which was the the, the secret service, which is now called the FSB. FSB. Um. When you were writing the letters to Jana, you knew they were being read by the KGB.
0: Well, I sort of guessed that everything I did was monitored yeah. by the KGB. But uh, they, before before that, uh, we had a rather disconcerting experience with the KGB. Mm. They approached Jana at her institute in Moscow uh, and more or less uh, said, you know, we want to hear what's discussed at these uh, dinner parties that are these w- w- among the foreigners that you and this Irish Times correspondent meet, and they they actually had very good reason to to ask because two of my best friends in Moscow were uh, one was Stan Smiley, who was uh, the Daily Telegraph correspondent, and his father was the Smiley that John Le Carre's books were based on. Who was uh, his father was a member of both. I uh, was a member of MI6. So, uh, my other best friend in Moscow was Rupert Cornwell of the London Independent. And he was a brother of John Le Carre, so whose real name is uh, David Cornwell. So, these were two characters that the KGB would obviously be very interested in. And here were we. So uh,
1: would I. <laughs> I, mean, I think we
0: are. dining <laughs> and dining with. <laughs> we fascinated so. at several levels. So, they approached Jana three times. Um, uh, each time got more menacing. And each time, uh, uh, Jana came and told me. Uh, they, they had every reason to think that Jeanne would cooperate because what she didn't tell you was she was actually not just a, a member of the Communist Party, but she was a very highly considered member of the Communist Party and a deputy in the Krasnoyarsk Soviet, which is the parliament of an area five times the size of France. So they had every reason to expect Jeanne to be a very cooperative and dutiful Soviet citizen. But at this stage, the scales had fallen from Jana's eyes because we were witnessing... Uh, partly through going to the movies and reading books that exposed what was happening in the Soviet Union. There this explosion of glasnost, which was quite extraordinary. Uh, so uh, on the third uh, uh, occasion, Jana thought she was being driven to the Lubyanka, but they took her instead to... To the national hotel,
1: Lubianka being the the, the headquarters,
0: headquarters of the KGB, yes. with with the deep cellars and corridors, and serious interrogations. Um, yes. So uh, this time they 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 threatened her that she wouldn't get her PhD because uh, they could do that. They could they could tell the university the student should not be given her a PhD. Uh, they had that much authority. As it happened, uh, I knew uh, a ve- very well uh, Judith Devlin. A, diplomat in the Irish Embassy, and every time this genre was approached, this was over a period of weeks, I went to see Judith Devlin and I said, I took her out into the garden in the embassy because you couldn't talk freely inside, because of uh, uh, listening devices. And I I told her what had happened, I said I don't want, I'm not complaining, I I don't want anything written written to the Irish government, I just want on the record because I had no idea what might happen but I just knew it was a bad thing that was happening. As it turned out, two things uh, rescued us. One was we got married, so they they wrote Shanna off at that stage. But the second thing was that Gorbachev uh, was intent on reforming the KGB, and he sacked the head of the KGB and brought in a reformer who uh, said that the surveillance was going to be lifted from foreigners. Nobody believed him, but that's that's what he said anyway. So, so uh, the the KGB left us alone after that.
1: So that so Jana, at that point, did you feel? Russia's really opening up now. We have hope. We have we are going to turn into a normal country with normal freedoms with a multi-party system. Is that how it seemed then?
3: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. It was it was as I said, most liberating period and and we learned so much. We we could go to meetings, we could demonstrate, we could be outside, nobody was stopping us. At least you you didn't see the same sort of surveillance which was probably there, but, but you, you you didn't see it. And there were demonstrations after demonstrations in relation to various areas of life, et cetera. And, yes, I thought everything changed, mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, in the country, and that it was going to be like any other country where people are allowed to say what they think and they don't have to to worry that somebody would think they're challenging the system, you know, whatever the
1: system. And interestingly, Connor. Being the legendary journalist you are, with that extraordinary timing that journalists of your caliber have, you were you were you were placed in you were you were assigned to Washington uh, just before the whole thing
0: exploded in Moscow. Yeah, with was wonderful timing. I was uh, um, transferred to Washington a month before the coup, uh, which, uh, as you know, brought down the Soviet Union six months later. Uh, so um,
1: you're a bit. Re- were you a bit regretful about that?
0: As a journalist. I, w- I was devastated. Uh, but I remember complaining to Rupert Cornwall, who'd also been transferred to Washington at the same time. Uh, this is terrible. I should be there. I've trained five years for this very moment uh, when the tanks came onto the street. And Rupert said something to me which I'd never forgotten, which was, "Connor, we got a good run for our money. And, of course, then in the United States, the Clinton was elected and the whole peace process exploded. Uh, and I was for a long time the only Irish journalist covering the White House. So,
1: Was that your first book? Uh, uh,
0: well, I, I wrote home. a book called Melting Snow, which is about my, a memoir of my time in, in, in Moscow. A political book, not a personal book. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote a book uh, called The Greening of the White House about how Clinton got involved in the peace process. And Jeanne, of course, uh, got uh, recruited by the World Bank, which was setting up a small team to privatise Russia.
1: Which has to be one of the great ironies of this story, Jana. I mean, we still haven't talked about your, the generations going back, but the idea of you getting a job at the World Bank to help privatise Moscow at a time when everything seemed to be going rampaging out of control there. What was that like?
3: Absolutely, absolutely. I was obviously, it happened, I happened to be in Washington at the right time and I... We we were at a dinner party, as it happens in uh, in Washington at, at uh, um, Irish American socialized Stella O'Leary, and there I was sitting next to Michael O'Farrell, who worked for International Finance Corporation, part of the World Bank, and we had a conversation at the table, dinner table, and he asked me what I was going to do, etc. And I said, I don't I don't know yet, but I'm trying to. To, to see what I can do, in, and he said to me, why don't I make appointments, come and you meet a couple of people, because I think there might be something for you. And obviously, like I, I never expected him to call back, but Michael calls me back and says, come on Tuesday, I have a couple of people for you to meet. And then basically, I... Went through their system to to take an exam to translate because that was the only thing that was available, uh, you know, sort of part time work or casual work, and I and I did a bit of translation and they assigned me to a department which was which was starting the you know to to get involved with privatization. They did privatization in Poland before when Poland, you know, moved from socialist to capitalist country and they were doing the same for the Soviet Union, and the the guy there who was the, uh, the manager, he offered me a full-time job to, to work on this project. And I was, uh, you know, I was not sure how I was going to contribute, etc. But he said, we're only starting, come, and, and, and I had fantastic experience, work experience from the point of view of somebody seeing the potential. I was a trained teacher. I did PhD in Lexicology of the English Language, and here I was, mm-hmm you know, at the heart of all this uh, capitalist
0: Uh, environment. I should explain that uh, the reason the International Finance Corporation was setting up this small group of people uh, to privatise Russia was because Yeltsin had become president of Russia and he knew that the communists, they weren't finished, there was still a very strong communist party there. Everything in Russia was owned by the state. Everything, every factory, every mine, every mode of transport, every shop, every store, even the kiosk at the corner of the street Everything is owned by the state. How do you privatize that? And they, 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 Yeltsin turned to the World Bank, the International Finance Corporation, and asked for help. So they set up a small group of consultants who began traveling to Moscow, and they identified one city, which would be an example of how to privatize. And they privatized the city of Nizhny Novgorod, where the governor was uh, Boris Nemtsov. And Janin uh, became involved in setting up that experiment. So. I took her to Washington. The next thing, she was on the plane back to Moscow uh, to to meet Boris Nemtsov and uh, to get involved. And this
1: and Boris Nemtsov is the same Boris Nemtsov who ended up killed within sight he, of the Kremlin he b- he a few years ago. He
0: leader of the opposition, and he was shot outside the Kremlin what three years ago? Yes, yeah, four, yeah. four maybe. maybe. Uh, because he was about to expose Russian yeah. involvement in there Ukraine.
1: There is so much yeah. to talk about here. Um, can I just ask you, Jana, about your first impressions of of living in the West? What was it like to land in Washington? Of all places in all the world, to land in Washington D.C., where there is a huge sort of division between blacks and whites, and the, it's the world center of power, obviously. I mean, did all of this was it slightly overwhelming for you, or
3: absolutely, absolutely, it was absolutely overwhelming. Obviously, I had the advantage of having Connor, you know, next to me who could explain lots of things, and obviously as a person who moved. From my country to a foreign country, I didn't have to hustle for papers, for passports, for anything like that. So I had it easy from that point of view. But also, as somebody who had been always independent and was taught to be an independent woman, independent person, obviously, I I I, I couldn't even picture my life being dependent of uh, uh, being dependent on Connor when we moved there. So I was trying to find my own way around and plunge myself into learning about everything about America I could,
1: reading, you know. Jenna, what did you see? And I I, I I, think you described sort of 40 different kinds of flour. Absolutely, absolutely. Tell us a little bit about that. I tell you,
3: the section, pet food section, was enough to overwhelm anybody because giant food store, which was close to our house where I went shopping, when I first saw the size of the shop, where we had nothing... At the time we left we left Russia, there was nothing in the shops in the supermarket where we the apartment where where Connor Connor's apartment was. I think at that time if there was There was 11, know, eleven
0: items yes, on the shelves. E-
3: yeah. In the supermarket. Yeah. Eleven items eleven in the whole items. supermarket. And here we are in the land of everything and more than more than anything you need. So but but very soon you realize to also see what is what you need what you don't need and stuff like that and what i did try i tried to live a life in a way the same way i lived in in my my own country that you know you you cook your own food you choose fresh food and vegetables and and stuff like that because obviously very soon you 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 see that all this packaging or everything is so you know over Waste. Oh, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But but Did you go it, it around took, slightly it took, it took appalled,
1: Jana, for a time. while. Were you, were you were you a bit outraged at our lifestyle? I I was
3: no, I I wasn't outraged, and I was not bitter at all about what you had. I I was obviously sorry that my parents had been working all their lives and had no access to the choices you have. Of course, of course, you feel totally inferior. Uh, if if you if you if you don't know how to use something or you have never seen this product or whatever it was, but but you you also you know you also try t- to learn from from the people you're around and and uh, and see what is what is the best of, of, of the country in, in in every case. What was really to me most maybe um, interesting older people older people. In the Soviet Union, older people, most of them, obviously had hard lives. And this is the generation that went through the war that had such sacrifices. And they had nothing. And especially at the end of the Soviet Union, they had no dignity, no nothing. Because, because again, the, the the Soviet Union took care of them, you know, a little bit better. Yes, we were all poor, equally poor, but everybody had enough. Everybody had a job. But when the system collapsed, they didn't put anything in place that that supported at least older people. So to come to the West and to see, very well put together, you know, with ha- haircuts, hairdos, you know, manicure, pedicure, you name it. It was it was Driving on a personal cars, on a ball. personal level. Yeah. This was most most yeah. most I think. If you ask me about one thing, this probably to see that older people had a place in in life, even though I know there are lots of problems, et cetera, et cetera. But still, these are the people who enjoy life. They were full members of society, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, the things that I heard about the West in terms of, you know, white and black people in America, in Washington, when we arrived, there were places you couldn't go to and 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 yes in the car even when we drove somewhere you know we you don't just go there i didn't realize it one time i was i was coming you know i went shopping in the evening came back from work had dinner and then went shopping and then when i pulled pulled you know very middle class neighborhood in the car i saw that there was uh, the, there was a guy he was you know he was harassing abusing or whatever whatever physical with a woman i wanted to to go and interfere. But my neighbor told me, Jana, don't even try. You you can't do this, you know, because because you don't know. Maybe the guy has a gun, maybe whatever, whatever. And sort of those things, which because guns were not on, you know, part of my vocabulary and, and life, et cetera, et cetera. So at that level, yes, many things were shocking, but some of them were also, so to speak, true that we were told, yes. you
1: know, can, can I just add one of the things that struck a chord with me? I know nothing about gardening, but you were also kind of amazed that people use their gardens to grow ornamental shrubs. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Is <laughs> that still amazing? It, it still
3: amazes me because, because again, in our culture, in the Caucasus, especially when we lived, you grew everything, and that's why you had a good actually lifestyle as well because you worked hard, you you gathered what what you what, what you what you 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 grew. And, and you preserved it for the winter, and you basically fed yourself through, through the winter. We did the same in Siberia, even though the climate was much, much more difficult and stuff like that. You still managed but to do it? We still managed to do it. And you should see my mother's tomatoes and aubergines, etc. even now. I mean, it's unbelievable, unbelievable. Now she probably could go and buy them, but, but, but still, because the, the pleasure of having fresh
1: food that you grow yourself is, is, is amazing. Connor, tell us about the, 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 the germination of the book. The idea came when, when a couple of people suggested that Jana really had an extraordinary story. I, I
0: wrote a book on the last day of the Soviet Union in uh, 2011. Uh, and in the preface, I had mentioned uh, my credentials to write about Russia, which included being married to uh, Jana's family and a couple of things that had happened. And Brian Langan, son of an Irish Times photographer, incidentally, um, uh, 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 Pat Langan, Uh, He was working for Transworld Publishers and he approached me along with a colleague and said, we think there's a book in the story of your wife's family. I I was very doubtful at the start because I knew all the episodes in Jana's family's history and they were very dramatic. Jana's mother comes from Nagorno-Karabakh where there's a continuous war going on. Uh, Her parents came from Grozny which has been twice devastated from our father, uh, twice devastated in wars. Um, Her cousin uh who was like a big brother to jana uh, was a major in the uh, police in Krasniyarsk was assassinated by the mafia um uh, jana's husband was was killed in the way she described um, the uh, jail sentence for Jana's father was actually at the heart of the book because uh, it was such an injustice uh jana's father had a car for three years because he had worked so hard he' had, He was a master shoe designer, not just a shoemaker. So he did a lot of work uh, on the side as well as working in a shoe factory. He was able to buy a car and for three years he had that car and then he decided to sell it. Uh, And he made the mistake of selling it on the market rather than through the official state commission shop. And that was called the crime of speculation because he made a bit of money. And at that time, Khrushchev, who was the Soviet leader, had taken it into his head to clamp down on speculators. People who were buying and selling, which was not allowed in the old Soviet Union, everything state controlled. And Jana's father, Stanislav, became a victim of Khrushchev's campaign against speculators. He expected when he was brought to court, uh, he was arrested, the car was confiscated and he was brought to court after six months sitting in a horrible prison cell. Uh, He expected a, a short jail sentence at most and he got seven years seven years, because of the word had come down from the Kremlin that their examples had to be made. Uh, so that's the heart of the book. And then uh, as I looked at all these episodes, I realised that history had impacted a lot on Jan's family as well. Uh, the, the fact that Khrushchev at that period in history had decided to clamp down on speculators. The fact that uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union meant that Nagorno-Karabakh became engulfed in a in a civil in a civil war. The fact that their 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 house and their 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 home in Grozny uh, became well Grozny was, was twice destroyed in the Civil War. Jana's aunt and cousins in Grozny had to flee because of that war. Uh, and then of course uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, brought about terrible hardship to Jana's family and that her parents lost their savings three times. Three times. They lost their savings because of uh, devaluation and because of uh, the, 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 the very reckless uh, policies of uh, the, the last years of uh, of Gorbachev's time. So I realised that this was history by the back door to tell the story of Jana's family. And it was a wonderful family story as well. Uh, so the two came together, and I remember after Bran Langan asked me about whether there might be a book in it or not, I took Jana to a coffee shop in Enniskerry and sat her down and said, listen uh, here, what do you think of this? We're
1: going to talk <laughs> about your father's time in prison, Jana. Exactly. Yes. How did you feel about that, Jana? I was so excited. <laughs>
2: I, I, I
0: knew at this stage that Jana's parents, for years, and Jana's house it was never mentioned that there was a prison sentence in the background. Never mentioned. So uh, Jana's That's mother a actually, is, is uh, she became... Uh, the 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 uh, the font for the research in the book because she got very involved in in uh, in working with me on the book uh, Stanislav died three years ago and she went into a bit of a decline uh, working on the book and going back looking for photographs and telling stories and memories you could see her reviving and I think it actually had a had a very positive effect on jana 's mother and um uh, I gave her a copy of the book. She can't read English, by the way. But I gave her a copy of the book, and uh, I know that Jana's nephew, or um, nephew, yeah, uh, was able. He he speaks English. He was able to translate. Bits there of are
1: wonderful her. pictures in it, including one of your father while he was serving time mm. um, yes. in 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 prison. Jana, um, it's. It is a, it, I think it's an astonishing book because for anybody who doesn't understand that, uh, that, that disputed territory for a start between uh, Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan, um, the, the politics of, of Russia, how we came to the time of the oligarchs, which a lot of people do not understand, I believe. But it, this gives it some context, which I think is terribly important. Connor, finally, where do you think we're going with Russia? I mean, everybody's terrified of Putin now. Are we right to be paranoid about him?
0: Uh, yes, I think we are. Uh, if you look what he's doing with um, uh, with Ukraine, um, seizing th- an act of piracy, seizing three three uh, Ukrainian military ships or, or naval ships. Um, the, the situation in Russia is on a knife edge, I think, because the economy is not doing well. Sanctions are hurting. Uh, the investment in Russia is drying up because of the threat of further sanctions and. Uh, large companies don't want to invest where there is uncertainty. There is uh, a very vigorous opposition uh, movement under, uh, mostly guided by a, an anti-corruption campaigner called Navalny, uh, who they don't touch because uh, he's so popular and he makes videos exposing this uh, uh, corruption. And I know from... We visit uh, Krasnoyevsk uh, and, and Moscow... Uh, you know, once every 12, 15 months. I know from going back there that there is um, the worldview of the ordinary Russian is what the Kremlin tells them it is because it's just like the old Soviet Union. The television is controlled, but it's not totally controlled. The Internet uh, is fairly is free. Uh, so people know that Russia is isolated and has been in, guilty of you know doping athletes and uh, poisoning people abroad they know that and that a lot of them don't like it they, they they have to swallow the Kremlin line to a certain extent but they don't like it and I sense that there's a potential for uh, what Putin really really fears and that is an orange revolution like happened in Kiev uh, but it how it'll come about I don't know but I do know that Putin uh, is not I don't think he feels very secure in the Kremlin. There's all sorts of power play going on inside so the Kremlin. As well.
1: Living in very dangerous times.
0: Yes, yes. So we've, we've a right to be nervous, uh, but I wouldn't, know, I wouldn't want to overstate it too much.
1: Shanna, finally, your mother is still in Siberia, which always sounded like a curse to us, but in fact now sounds like a delightful place to be. And all is well with your family?
3: Yes my mother will be 80 in March and and we look forward to to going and and visiting her and uh yes she's she's in great health she's still minding her dacha and the garden and uh, obviously it's very difficult to be away at this stage of my life knowing that you know you know it it is it is difficult I think with age and uh, I love Ireland I obviously now it's my home we have been here for 13 years Connor was delighted to come back to Ireland after 24 years being away and loves it, which is great. And and I try my best to be at home, but but obviously it it will never
1: be my my own place, no matter how much I try to be part of it. And I urge people to read the book because your Armenian heritage, that Russian part of you, Chechnya, all these places that actually have such a huge, huge impact in our heads, but we've never quite understood them. They are almost embodied in you and, and, and in the story, Connor. So, everybody should write this, read this book, uh, which is called the Shoemaker. the Shoemaker and His Daughter. Which is called The Shoemaker yeah. and His Daughter by Conor O'Cleary. Jana and Connor, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Kat. Thank you very much. And that's it for today. Thanks very much to Connor and Jana for speaking to me today. I could have spent several hours more with them. And a reminder that the book is called The Shoemaker and His Daughter. Before you go, just to let you know that next Thursday our book club is back in business and they'll be talking about Michelle Obama's book Becoming, because we haven't talked about her enough on the show already, have we? (laughs) Stay tuned for that one. You won't want to miss it. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and you can always find us on irishtimes.com with lots of other good shows like Worldview and Inside Politics. You can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at ITWomensPodcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and until next time, thanks for listening.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.